Family first. The slogan rings true. This is what the Bible teaches, or does it? In the ancient world, family was first, not just for your nuclear family, but the large extended family that was under the rule of the clan's patriarch. This group provided protection, economic support, and demanded absolute loyalty. As we turn with our study leader Dave Wordson to Genesis 11:27, we meet one of these powerful patriarchs. Family first. How many of you have ever heard the slogan, family first? If you watch Channel 8 here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, it's amazing. They come on with these family first things. And what do they teach us? They teach us all kinds of stuff about dads needing to spend time with their sons and with their daughters. They challenge us about moms that need to balance career and being able to balance the time at home. They challenge those of us that are able to have the privilege of being able to go on vacation with our kids, to be able to really listen to them, to care for them, to protect them. I think it's just incredible. I think it's part of common grace that here in our area that the Lord powerfully works and his grace spreads out. And even a station that's not at all in the Christian sphere is challenging us to put family first. In fact, ever since I was a little kid, the idea of focus on the family. How many of you ever heard of that? That's become a major movement. I remember when James Dobson first wrote Dare to Discipline. And he challenged the prevailing view that children were just a tabla rosa. That means they were just a blank slate and, and you just needed to kind of get out of the way. And Dr. Dawson challenged us, no, you dads and moms, you need to discipline those kids. That you need to be positive and instruct them, but you also need to put some restraint. And that book sold in the millions and focus on the family was born. It, in fact, you equate, if I say Jesus and family, they all go together, don't they? I mean, that's a really big priority. What's interesting about the idea of family first is it really what the Lord Jesus teaches. In fact, when we open up this page of Genesis, I want you to turn to chapter 11. I want you to look at some really strange verses because I want to talk to you about the fact that it's possible that our nuclear family, that Mary and I with our kids, and if we totally focus on our own immediate family, and we put that family first, it's possible that we could slide in to a very subtle form of idolatry, which is the idolatry of the family. You see, one of the things I want you to ask yourself is who really needs to be first in your life this morning? And I want to talk to you about the fact that in the ancient world, family did come first. But it wasn't just your nuclear family. It was your whole extended family. You see, until just recently, really, in history... Your family, and then the kids who were produced, and grandfather and great-grandfather, and all the extending cousins and nephews, that became your place of protection. How many of you have, have ever gone to a family gathering? When I moved here to Texas, one of the things I'd have, like the McWhorters, Wallace would say, we're going to have a McWhorter family gathering. And every year... They had their McWhorter family gathering, and all the clans that came over here, their Scots-Irish, they all even talk about the kilts that they used to wear back in the old country, and it goes on and on. They talk about their history. How many of you have some extended family like that? You look upon that as a social gathering, and a lot of you do it about once a year. Some of you do it more often, but that's the closest in our American culture that we probably get to a little bit of a feel of what family meant. In fact, when I talk about family in the Word of God, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's not even a word in Hebrew or Greek 
that covers just the nuclear family. That's interesting. In other words, we do start out with a nuclear family, Adam and Eve and then their kids, and I've told you a little bit about their story. We start out with a nuclear family, but very quickly that nuclear family explodes. And yes, you know, Adam and Eve's sons did marry their sisters because the genetic pool wasn't polluted at that time and the whole human race is born. And then we go through the destruction of Cain's civilization, its infiltration with the, the seed of the woman civilization and the flood, only Noah and his family make it through in the story of the Bible, which is kind of a foretaste of the whole history that we're going to have of redemption where we're going to have those that believe God's promise, trust in his pr- promise of the great deliverer. They're going to make it through God's judgment. But as we come out of the flood and we move to Babel, we have a real tension that's raised. The family of the earth have decided we're not going to stay in one place. We're not going to scatter out like God wants us to. We're going to build a great big city. And so you've all heard the Tower of Babel story. That's a really important story. Because in that story, you have God spelling out for you at the beginning of the story. One of the major things that the seed of the serpent is going to tell you is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is you need to gather together and you need to use your technology to build great big buildings. You don't need to scatter out and you'll make a name for yourself. In other words, your eternity will become that you put your name on the Tower of Babel and then everybody comes in the future generations, they'll remember you built this great tower. That's why Donald Trump has the Trump Tower. That's a modern expression of that. What does God do? God comes down and he says, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop this arrogance. I'm going to stop this belief. Was God being mean when he did that? No. Do you really want to live just to put your name in a building? Do you really want to live under the curse of death forever and ever and ever and build all your life just on the beautiful music that you can play in Babylon, the beautiful culture experiences that you can have, the beautiful art that you can produce? Is that going to be enough? That's the big challenge. And then God scatters the nations. We have a whole genealogy that most of us skip through, but it describes all the nations and it describes the world with all the nations, all different people groups scattering out over all the earth. And the big question that's raised is, what's going to happen to those scattered people? And that's a major question that's asked in the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is, what is God going to do about all these scattered nations? And that's when we get to chapter 11. And it's very strange because we read in verse 26 of chapter 11 that God begins to focus our attention on a man named Terah. How many of you ever heard of Terah? You know, yeah, who is he? Somebody tell me who he is. That's Abraham's daddy. He's not nearly as famous as his son, but look what it says. Then Terah had lived 70 years. He became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Those are Abraham's two other brothers, Haran and Nahor. This is the account of Terah. So this little phrase, this is the kind of Terah, that's a major break in the story. We're going to introduce a new story. And when you have that in Genesis, when it says this is the kind of Terah, I would expect we're going to have the story of Terah. But the way Moses uses that little literary phrase to introduce a section, it's going to be what comes from Terah. Not Terah. Terah himself isn't going to be that great. Terah is going to be what he produces. And what God does with what he produces. So this introduces the story of a very important man. It says, this is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram. The story focuses on Abram because that's what Terah produced. 
You might have forgotten that Abram also had a brother named Nahor and a brother named Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Why does this story tell you about Lot? Because he's going to be very important in the story of Abram. And those of you in Sunday school that have the responsibility of teaching our kids, you need to make sure that they know the story of Lot. While his father, Terry, was still alive, Haran died in Ur the Chaldees. Now, I would expect when I have this story introduced that Abram is going to live in Ur the Chaldees. It was a beautiful city in the ancient world. It had, the most, it had running water. It had beautiful music. It had incredible buildings. I would expect that Moses is going to tell me a story to all the Israelites about how Father Abraham had many sons, and they lived in Ur the Chaldees, and they enjoyed the beautiful culture of Ur, and they lived to be a great, great grandfather. And then Abram died, and he accomplished human life. That's what a nuclear family is about. You're supposed to get married. Mary and I are supposed to get married and have kids, and the meaning of our life is what we do with that nuclear family, right? That's what I would expect. As I read this account, Tara has Abram. He has two other brothers. I expect them to have barbecues in the backyard. I expect them to have incredible fun together. I expect to see great grandkids bouncing in Abraham's life. But that's not the story that's told. That's not the story that Moses tells. Look what Moses says. Moses says, first of all, that Haran died in Ur of the Chaldees. So the nuclear family is, is attacked because death infiltrates it. And this is the great Chaldea, which in, if you're an Israelite, later on Chaldeans are going to produce Babylon, which is going to be the one that destroys the temple. So all the Jewish people, when they read this, it's like the red lights go off. This is Chaldea. This is the other side. This is the serpent side. If you live just for Ur the Chaldees, then you're never going to escape the curse of death. And none of us can do that. And the writer Moses is challenging us. You've got to live for something far more than just Ur the Chaldees. So Haran died in Ur in the land of his birth. And Abraham and Nahor both married. So I go, okay, Moses, now you're going to tell me the story about families and how great they are and how we need to put family first. But the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. I said, that's good. They're getting married. Now we're going to have lots of kids. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milk and Iska. So, man, we, we got the family, the, the nuclear family beginning to explode in what was called the house of the father. This is the house of Terah. And they're going to live happily ever after. But then it says, now Sarai was barren, and she had no children. And again, we have Abram's brother dying. We have his wife with the greatest curse in the Old Testament people, in ancient people. If you were a wife and you couldn't produce kids, it didn't mean, well, that's great. Now I can work at another job and have a full-time career. It wasn't such a good thing in the ancient world. It was tough. It meant that the gods didn't bless you. And this is going to become a major, major story. In fact, the whole Abram story is going to develop. Will Sarai be able to produce a child? And we're going to have to wait all the way through until we arrive at Isaac being born. And 22 is when he's possibly sacrificed. But the whole story that Moses introduces, this tremendous conflict. We got a nuclear family, and we think they're going to live happily ever after. But we got a wife that's barren. She's under this curse. Abram's brother dies. What's going to happen? So that's the way this story is set up. And as we read verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. 
But when they came to Haran, they settled down there, and Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. And so the story of Terah, this is the account of Terah. That's the end of the story. Because the father of the household has died. I want you to feel there's tremendous tension. And part of what I want you to to learn as I'm teaching you is that I want you to learn to read God's word like this. There's tremendous tension here. This is not a good story right now. We've got the head of the household. In fact, the Hebrews referred to your family as the father's house, the house of the father. And what they meant by that is that I needed to keep all of my kids. I would be, now because I'm a grandfather, it would be Dave Wurtson's house. And Jonathan and Joel and Joshua and Janae and all their kids would be under the house of the father. Some of you were raised in families like that. In the ancient world, the house of the father, like Abraham later on in the story, can get 300 men that can go out and fight against an enemy because one of the members of his household, Lot, even though he's estranged from his uncle, Abraham's going to take care of him. This is like Louis L'Amour stories, the Sackets. Some of you that read that, you'll understand that. And all of you understand the idea of family loyalties and family protection and family security. Now, what's the story of the Bible going to do with that? In the ancient world, those were your ultimate loyalties. If I was teaching in the ancient world, I would tell you, daddies, you have absolute authority over your family, not just your nuclear family, but you've got authority over all of your extended family. And you arrange marriages, and you, you get kids to work out their problems. You are the, the father, the daddy. That's what it meant. Now, what's God going to do with that? This is where we need to read God's word really carefully because that's the culture in the ancient Near East. But what's God going to do about this idea of this ultimate loyalty to the house of the father? Terah has died. In fact, the story doesn't really move until the ultimate head of this family, from a human standpoint, is taken out of the way. And that leads us to some of the most important verses in the Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord had said to Abraham, so the NIV translates it because it's trying to work out the time period. It actually uses a verb that's hard to tell exactly when God gave the command. They're implying that God, when Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees, gave the command for Abraham to do this. But Abram doesn't fulfill the command the way that he should, to the full extent. Why not? Because God asked Abram to do something that was really tough to do in the ancient world. He asked him to do several things. Look what he did. First of all, he said, I want you to leave your country. Your ultimate loyalty... As a person sitting here this morning, I want to ask you, do you love Jesus more than you love the United States of America? Are you more burdened about helping Gratia on Tuesday night to keep fulfilling the great commission to Muslim people? Or are you just committed to the American way? I'm not talking about not being a good citizen. In fact, Jesus will tell you that you need to be a good citizen. But at the very beginning of the story of the Bible, the Bible tells us that your ultimate loyalties can't be to your country. That's what happened to Germans. See, Germans were taught really strongly. It's about blood, and it's about nation, and it's about land. And even the German church in World War II believed it's about Germany, it's about our kin, our blood, and it's about our extending that cultural influence. And the beginning of the story of the Bible said, no, it isn't. 
your ultimate loyalty, if God says you need to leave your country, you need to leave your country. And that's why in our church, like just last week, we had Nate back from Thailand. What in the world is Nate doing in Thailand? Some of you are sitting there going, I don't get that at all. Who cares about Bangkok? God cares about Bangkok. They're part of the wandering nations. Who's going to reach the wandering nations? And I want to challenge you. The reason I love Jesus this morning is because my mom and dad taught me from the time I was a little bitty kid that my ultimate priority was not just to my homeland, as important as that was, but from the time I was a little kid, I was introduced to the gray Shaburnums. And that's what I want you to think hard about. Is your commitment stronger in your individual family? You're raising kids that you're really focused on the United States? So much so that you're not looking at the nations that need to be reached and other people groups right within our own country that need to be reached? That's a difficult saying. That's a different command. Moses was challenging the Israelites. Father Abraham was told you got to leave your country. And then he said you need to leave your people and your father's household. Man, those were, those were incredibly tough words in the ancient world. Because what did I tell you? It's not just your immediate family. This is the place where you get protection. Abram, when he was with Terah and his brothers that were left alive and all of their family, when they were in Ur of the Chaldees, they had all the relatives. They had family gatherings at Ur and that protected them. And God told Abram, I want you to leave the protection of your family. I want you to leave that city. I want you to leave your people. That's tough. But it has to do with ultimate loyalties. You see, Father Abraham could have said, I'm just going to stay in Ur of the Chaldees. I'm going to stay with Terah. In fact, he had a trouble doing this because he, he, he took Terah with him. And they go several hundred miles to the north. They stop at the top of the Fertile Crescent at a place called Haran, which isn't the promised land. And then they sit there. The story doesn't really get going again until Terah dies. And Moses is emphasizing your ultimate loyalty needs to be to the great I am. It needs to be to the great Lord. And when he tells you that you need to leave your family, like in my own life, like I wasn't born in Texas. I was born in New Jersey with the water, like I often tell you. And every single Saturday night, I went to the Big Apple. And when I watched the Yankees, I have divided loyalties. I, were, I, I rooted for the Yankees. I knew Mickey Mantle. And I could talk like Tudor Church and Tudor Church Avenue in Brooklyn. That was my upbringing. But the Lord told me to leave my household. Like I haven't ever lived where my blood relatives are. And I came to Texas, which my Yankee brothers feel is outer space. So I want you to see how this really impinges like, there were even times where my dad said, man, you need to come back. You need to do so-and-so and so-and-so. And I made decisions. No, I don't think the Lord wants me to do that. And I had a dad that would say, that's okay. Because your, your, your loyalty to God the Father. My dad from that always blessed my pastoring. And that's what I want you to think of. This, I, that's how it works in my own life. The Lord might say to you, you need to leave your people. You need, might need to leave your people. That the Lord, not always. But what's your priority? What comes first? Then you need, and you need to go to the land that I will show you. 
So Abraham had had to do some very difficult thing. The Lord says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave the protection of your household. And I want you to go to the land that I will tell you. You say, well, man, that's Abraham. I don't have anything to do with that. What about Jesus? Have you ever read some tough words? Let me read to you. In Matthew 8, 20 through 22, we have some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And this is really a tough thing because Jesus is asked by a lawyer, by someone that taught the law, that would knew what I was teaching in the book of Genesis chapter 12. Jesus was challenged, what do I have to do to follow you? This great lawyer comes and says, what do I have to do to follow you? Jesus answers him very strangely. He says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So the Son of Man doesn't have a land on earth. He said, you want to follow me? Then you're not going to ever be able to settle down on planet earth. Another disciple said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told me, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What in the world is the Lord saying? Do you realize in the ancient world to take care of your daddy? was one of your ultimate priorities, more important in many ways than taking care of your wife, taking care of your kids. You took care of, of the patriarch. Do you understand how radical those words are? What was Jesus saying? Now, what Jesus saying is you shouldn't care for your, for your dad and mom. That when Mary's mom and dad moved down here to Midlothian, that we didn't, Mary and I didn't need to take care of them as they were aging, that we, didn't, that we didn't need to walk through Alzheimer's with Mary's mom. Is the Lord Jesus saying no? He's not saying that. In fact, the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary, while he was dying on the cross, you remember what he said to John as Jesus hung there? Jesus said, behold your, everybody tell me. What was Jesus doing? Even on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was caring for his mom. But at the marriage of Canaan and Galilee, do you remember what Jesus said? In fact, you can go even before that. When Jesus was 12 years of age, he spent time in the temple. Remember that? And his parents lost him for three days, and they come to him. And even as a 12-year-old boy, they challenge you. They say, what are you doing? Man, you've worried us for three days. And what, how did Jesus respond? Oh, I'm so sorry. I was disobedient to you. I should have been with you. Is that the way Jesus responded? Even as a 12-year-old kid, in Judaism, right on the verge of being declared a son of the commandment, Jesus said, I have to be about my father's business. Are you teaching your kids to transfer their ultimate loyalty from you to God? Those are hard saying. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you can't say, well, I can't go to Thailand. I can't be like Nate because, man, my, my father and mother are getting older. And, I'm, and I want to be with my mom and dad. I want to be sure that I can care for them. And so I need to wait. When they die which could be when they're 100, then I'll go to Thailand. You'll never go to Thailand. In fact, Mary and I wouldn't be here today if families first. Because Mary's mom was told by her adopted father, you can't marry dad. You can't marry Arthur. Because he's going to the ministry. He doesn't really want to take over my dairy farm. I'm a very wealthy Pennsylvania farmer. And I need you to take care of me. You're, I adopted you. And Mary, that was Mary's mom, you need to take care of, of, of your adopted dad because you owe everything to him. And Mary's dad had to go to him and say, I'm going to marry your daughter because we love each other 
And Jesus has called us to be together. Some of you dads that exercise absolute authority over your home, this is a hard saying. Because it could be that you're squelching the call of God in your kids' lives. You need to be getting your kids ready to be wanderers because you're a wanderer. Have you settled too much on planet Earth? Are you too set? See, what I'm trying to deliver you from this morning is your two acres and your horses and your beautiful home and your kids around you is never going to be enough because it's going to be attacked. You're going to have people die. You're going to have accidents that happen. You're going to have kids that want to move away. And you need to let them do it. If the Lord is calling them. Because as a daddy, you're not the ultimate father. Jesus is saying that you need to let the dead bury the dead. You can't wait for the call of discipleship until you've taken care of all your family responsibilities. If you do that, you'll never take care of them. I want to really challenge you that if you put Jesus' commands first, You'll end up caring for your family better than you ever could have if you make them an idol. And I want you to see that Jesus, when he said this statement, Jesus wasn't inventing new stuff. He was bringing out what the Old Testament really meant. You see, as I speak about the family, some of you that are single, and you're saying, well, I'm not married. I don't have to hear about marriage. I don't have to hear about family. If you're single here today, or if you're a single parent in a home because your home is not nuclear anymore, I want you to know that what I'm telling you this morning is really important. Jesus himself was single. Jesus was a single man. That was a heinous thing in Judaism. That's one of the reasons why the Jews rejected him. Because Jesus didn't buy into, you got to be marry a woman. You need to have lots of kids. That's the meaning of life. Jesus chose because he wanted to redeem us from our sin to live as a single man. And to give his life so that we could live. And he told us, you need to be a wanderer in the earth. Because it's a better land. So I want to challenge you today. You say, well, Dave, why should I put God first? I want every one of you, when you hear this message, from now on when you hear Channel 8 say family first, I want you to go, no way. I want little kids in our audience, when they hear teachers say, me, you need to put your family first. I want our little kids to say, no, Jesus is first. You hear what I said? Who's first? And I want to tell you that because I want to promise you, because if you lose your life for Jesus, you'll get your family back to you. Because God delivers on his promise. Look what God says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. If you'll be willing to leave your household, leave your country, not let it be an idolatry, if you'll submit to me, then what does God promise? I want you to know, because God's really there, if you obey him, if you make him the number one worship person of your life, he's not going to destroy you. He's not going to hurt you. He's going to bless you because that's who he is. Look what he promises Abraham. He says, Abraham, if you'll do what I tell you, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. If you leave your household, what are you afraid of? That I'll just disappear into the great mass of humanity. What does God promise him? If you leave, if you leave your own household, then I'll give you many, many descendants. Just the opposite of what you would think. So I leave, I leave New York, leave upstate Adirondacks, beautiful mountains, and come to live where it's sweltering hot in Texas. And we start out with eight families, and then the Lord begins to give me a great big family. 
and the family continues to grow. You're part of an incredible movement of God's spirit and the children of God multiply. That's what I want all of you to be a part of. I want you to be part of that multiplication. The Lord says, if you'll obey me, I'll make you into a great nation. But the nation isn't Midlothian Bible Church. The nation is the people of God, the people that follow Jesus. And I want you to be committed to that around the world. That's what the promise means to Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Because he obeyed, he was willing to leave what he thought was his security, to leave what he thought was his ultimate loyalties, and instead he trusted God's promise. And Abraham had become a great nation. We're part of that nation. The Lord has blessed him. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. When you choose to put God first, they will all be forgotten. How many of you have ever heard of Abraham? Is Abraham's name great? Yes, it's really great. Father Abraham, he's had many sons. He's one of the most well-known people that's ever lived. Who would ever dream that? He leaves the most powerful city of his day, beautiful culture, and he starts wandering around, doesn't even know where he's going. How stupid could that be? But he had the command of God. He obeyed. And so you, when you're faced with a challenge, will I obey? Will I believe? You can hold on to that. Because God's going to cause you to be remembered. One day you're going to stand before the Son of God and he's going to bring out things that you never even dreamt the way you, exp- you were used to increase his family. But you have to obey. You have to, get your, you have to get away from idolatry. You need to let Jesus be first. Because I'm going to bless those that bless you and I, whatever curses you, I will curse. Because this is a division. Abraham's going to be on the seat of the woman. On the godly side. This is the line of Seth. The other side is going to be the line of the serpent. And the serpent is going to be attacking the line of Abraham. And those that believe like Abraham. Which were a part of that family. And there's going to be tremendous animosity. So that's why God says. It's not, God's not being arbitrary here. God is saying that all of you that join with Abraham. This, we're going to find out in the New Testament. This isn't just blood stuff. This is a union of faith. A union of trust, a union in joining Abraham and believing the great deliverer will come. And many of you have joined him. And God is saying, if you're his child, if you're his people, then he'll bless you. And people that curse you, they're not going to have the last word. One day, the Lord will bring Gracia, Burnham, that lost Martin. One day, the Lord Jesus will bring Martin, and he won't have any, any holes in his chest. He'll have an incredibly immortal, radiating, powerful body. And he'll say, Gracia, you got all of eternity to enjoy fellowship and the oneness of being part of my incredible household, Jesus' household. Will it be worth it that we gave our lives to reach the Abbasai? Yeah. That's the ultimate story of Abraham and what it means that he had many sons. Then the Lord says, and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. And we all know that that's the promise. How is all the world blessed through Abraham's seed? Because Abraham produced Isaac. And in chapter 22, he was willing to obey the Lord. And he was willing to offer Isaac. And then the Lord gave him back and had a ram sacrificed in his place. And the story continues. And Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. And one of his 12 sons is named Judah. And he's a basket case. But he turns out he's a kidnapper and a murderer and bad guy. Two of his sons die. 
And then twist of the story, God turned Judah's heart, and Judah becomes the great lion. He becomes the lion. He becomes the one that's going to produce the great Davidic king. And so David's born. And the story gets really good. And David unites the kingdom, and he builds this beautiful palace in Jerusalem. And the tribes are united. They're going to live happily ever after in the land that Abraham had come to be with. And all Abraham had was a little gravesite. When David's great reign, they owned the land from way up on the borders of Syria to way down on the borders of Egypt. And they're united. And then David commits adultery. And he murders her husband. And man, if you're a person of faith, everything crashes. The king, the great Davidic, the one that was the promised seed proved to be disappointing. And the story of the Old Testament challenges all of you as you look to human leaders, as you look to human causes, as you think that there's going to be the great answer. All of your princes, all of your hopes are going to end in disaster. Unless you put your hope in the ultimate seat, his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one that never committed adultery, never murdered, never lied, never was arrogant, never, never, never deceived anyone. He lived perfectly fulfilling the law, and he fulfilled the promise to Abraham. So the challenge to us today is, is it family first or is it God first? I think one of the ultimate idolatries in the American church is that we put family first. And what I want to challenge you is, if you put your family first and you live just for your nuclear family, you're going to lose it all. I want to tell you, the reason I follow Jesus today, like I've read philosophers that have given powerful arguments against Jesus. And I could, if I wanted to, I could use those arguments to really cause many of our young people to doubt their faith. I've also seen incredible hypocrisy within the family of God because I've been in all my life. God's family has really disappointed me and hurt me. You say, Dave, why, do you, why did you preach today about Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? Because when I was a little boy, my dad, it wasn't just about our family. My dad took me to the streets of New York. When I learned to play my trumpet, he said, blow the trumpet on the streets of New York with some of my dad's friends. And then my dad would get up in the Lower East Side and preach the gospel. Because in New York, he can do that. And they think it's not crazy. It's what it, a lot of people do that. And then I'd see my dad inviting people to come to know Jesus. And then I'd go at night to Helen Petrell. Helen Petrell was this old gang lady that heard my dad on the radio preach the gospel. And my dad would take me into a storefront church. And my dad had to come because everyone else was a convict. And they couldn't have a church unless they had a few people in their church that never had spent any jail time. And so we'd sit together in this circle and I'd hear stories a former gang guy, how Helen Petrow, in the middle of the night when the east side was coming against Harlem, she went into the middle of them and said, guys, stop. Stop the violence. And this dear, dear, heavy-set, rust woman would say, Jesus changed my life. And I'd be sitting around with all these gang kids that Jesus changed their lives. I remember when I was a little kid, 
my dad taking me to the hospital. One of my dad's quartet members had just recently been married. And with his wife, they were going up Route 22, which is a terrible road. Still is a terrible road. And a tire came off the vehicle, and one of my dad's quartet members had just got married with his precious new wife in the car. He veered to get away from the tire, head on into another car, and his wife was gone. And I was about eight years old. And the tears are rolling down my cheek because I knew this quartet guy. I knew his wife. And I remember the little eight-year-old kid, what in the world did he ever do? When a guy in his honeymoon had just lost his wife. My dad took me into the hospital room in that kind of situation. And I saw my dear dad cry. And I saw him hug a guy that he ministered with. And I heard them say, this is really bad. And I saw that dear quartet guy look at my dad and say, but you know, we're going to be reunited again because of Jesus. And boy, do I hurt. But man, does the resurrection of Jesus mean everything to me now. That's why I love Jesus. Because my dad put Jesus first, not family. My dad took me out into the marketplace. I want to challenge you. If you're a homeschooler, your kids need to be exposed to unbelieving kids. It's awesome that you're homeschooling. I want to bless you in that. I want to pray that your tribe may increase. It's one of your greatest freedoms. But if your kids aren't in touch with kids that don't know Jesus, and if they don't see Jesus transforming lives, then they're never going to believe it when they get big. In fact, there's a really good chance that when they get to be 18, they're going to throw off all that father control. And they're going to reject your values. Because I'm telling you that this is far more than moral values. This is about a resurrected Savior that powerfully changes lives. And I plead with you as your pastor, you're sending your kids to Christian school. Make sure in that Christian kid school that every one of those kids is exposed to unbelieving kids. I went to a Christian school. I learned marvelous things in that Christian school. And I'm eternally thankful for that Christian school. But a ton of my friends that went to Christian school with me have turned away from Jesus because they were isolated. I trained my fellow classmates in how to reach people for Jesus, and they went back on Christmas vacation, and they won over 50 kids to Jesus. And when we came back home and we went to the administration, let us take these kids. They know how to present the gospel. Let us go into Orlando. Let us share in the park. They said, no. Don't raise your kids, not exposed to unbelieving people. It's the power of the living Christ really changing lives that the Lord is going to use to reveal himself. I want to bless you, dads. I want to bless you, moms. I want you to realize that your family isn't just about protection. It's not just about being your nuclear family. Your family is to be a light in the world. And if your family is a light in the world, if you make your ultimate priority to join Father Abraham and not live for your land, not just live for your people, but you're willing to walk in the midst of a bunch of Canaanites and touch people's lives for Jesus, 
I promise you, Jesus first. Obedience to Jesus. Jesus said, if you give up houses or lands or fathers or mothers or children, I'll give you many houses, many lands, many children. 